All right, we are in part 23 of our series, Walking Through the Book of Acts, line by line, and this series is called The Empowered Church. We're talking about this in the year of power, and I want to begin with this thought, and that is I feel we give way too much credit to bad, evil, and the devil. I want to be the guy that pounds the drum all through the year of power to remind you that our God is almighty. I want to remind you that there is nothing impossible for him. Amen? Amen. Okay, so what that means is we need to do what the Bible says is magnify the Lord. It means lift him back up to a high and lofty position where your problems seem small in comparison to the solution. It means that you are able to see the world from a 30,000 foot level and realize God is on the throne. He is in control. Now, sure, we're going to lose a couple battles here and there, but the war has already been won. So I remember back in 2014, one of the most difficult times of my entire life, there was a kind of a perfect storm of issues that really triggered my body. Now, I've had panic disorder since I was six years old, and, and it kind of overwhelmed me. It, the meds didn't help, stuff like that. So I remember I was doing everything, you know, healthy life decisions, diet, all that stuff. But I went into uh, a therapist because I was like, I, I, is there any way I can get my head back in the game? Because the problem with things like uh, clinical depression or with panic disorders, stuff like that, they are by definition irrational. They are chemically based. So you can't think your way out of it, right? And a lot of people don't understand that, right? That they'll say to somebody who has clinical depression, uh, you need to snap out of it. God is good. Okay, we just want to punch you. We don't, you know, <laughs> that's, that's just insulting, okay? Because it's not that I don't know God is good if I struggle with that. It's that my chemicals won't allow me to do certain things. And people are like, well, if you have, pan if you have panic disorder, you know, it, you just got to chill out. Okay, <clears throat> I hadn't thought about that, genius. Thank you for the <laughs> brilliant insight you just brought me. Okay, so I always tell, this is kind of how I explain it to everybody. If somebody doesn't quite understand the, the power of chemicals in your body, I said, all right, here's the deal. I'll chill out if you just stay awake next time you're in surgery. Right, because here's my point. Chemicals, that's what anesthesia is. They put chemicals into your system and you're going to go night-night. Doesn't matter what you think about it. Doesn't matter how much you're going to try to think you're going to stay awake. You're not going to stay awake. Okay, so in other words, no, you're not in control of it either. That's what happens when chemicals flood your body. You go into fight or flight mode, right? So in this, I remember being in the, the therapist's office and I just felt like I couldn't see it ever fixing right? I, you just can't see past it. You're so flooded, you don't have the ability to think straight. And I felt like in that moment, and I don't know if it was something that she said or just triggered something, but the Holy Spirit, I believe, dropped a note to me. And here was the note. He said, kiddo, you keep talking about impending doom. What about impending hope? And here was the point. He said, well, who wins in the end? I think we all know the answer to this. Who wins at the end of life? 
God always wins, okay? So if you're a child of God, then you know the end of the story is going to lead you to peace, to freedom, to joy, right? That's what's always going to happen. And you know it's all centering down on him. Therefore, like the tip of a spear, everything is sharpening and sharpening and sharpening that all God's kids will be next to him safe and restored. Therefore, no matter what you do as a child of God, you have impending hope. You can't stop it. You can't sin your way out of it. You can't screw up his plans. He's always going to win. Therefore, the enemy can't shut it down. Your failures do not dictate his plans. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Therefore, you have impending hope. It's around the corner, and there's nothing you can do about it. Imagine being on the other side of God Imagine you are Satan and your job is to try to stop good. That's impossible. Stop believing Hollywood's theology that the enemy is so big and bad. Listen, in our own power, the enemy can outwit us and outsmart us and is stronger than us. But we do not operate in our own power. We are children of God. What that means is we have a new identity. That which is old has passed away. All things have become new. Therefore, as a child of God, we are under his banner. Therefore, we walk in his power and authority. Therefore, the Bible says, greater is he that is within us. That's the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus Christ himself. Greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. And what that means is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It's simply this. God cannot be stopped. God cannot be stopped. We need to get our eyes back on the fact that we serve a warrior God. Because what you're doing is you're allowing your problems and your diagnoses and your difficulties define your joy. You're allowing those things to own you because you truly believe that they're bigger than God. They are not bigger than God. So therefore, we have to consistently get our minds back into the game and say, our God is on the throne. So, let's go ahead and take a look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. That's where you're going to be. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Last time we were together in the series, I talked about the fact that the hub of Christianity, this is an early fledgling movement, the hub of Christianity moved out of Jerusalem, or it was primarily a Jewish movement and largely homogenous. And it shifted its center up north into Syria to an international location called Antioch. Now, this is where God was going, listen, I started with this crew because he moves through the Jewish first, then he goes to the Gentile. So he went through the Jewish people, and now it was time to go worldwide. He shifted, and now all of a sudden, for the rest of Christianity, in its early stages, all the hub is up in Syria in Antioch. So we're going to begin our story today by learning a little bit about their leadership. Now, at Bridgeway, if you're new to us, let me explain something. We are a teaching church, and what that means is we slow a lot of things down to over-explain things, so we have the context to understand what the Bible's saying. My job is to simultaneously give you a message for today, but also to train you to read the Word for yourself. So the best way to study the Bible is you read through it and you, anytime a new idea is presented, I want you to ask the question, why is that here? 
What does that mean? If you answer those through study, you will end up doing the exact same thing I do every week, okay? Everybody has the ability to do the study and to figure this stuff out. It's all out there. But once again, our job is to not read this as merely academic, but to enter into it that it was real life then and it has application for us today. Amen? All right, so we're going to take a little bit of time on verse 1. You're going to be panicking in about 15 minutes and saying, oh my gosh, we're still on verse 1. Okay, I get it, I get it. The, the last half moves quickly, all right? Here we go, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now, you're going to find out for a variety of reasons these leaders operated in both offices. They were not only teachers, but they were also an office of prophet. That makes them very unique. Who are they? Well, they were Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we know as Paul. All right, let's, let's pause right there. Okay, there's a lot of people that were involved in early Christianity. Why are we naming these, right? Well, they're obviously very special. Maybe a lot of the church that was reading this book that Luke wrote, maybe they knew these folks and they were like, oh, they were way back from the beginning. Okay. But there's one thing that they mention right out of the get-go that maybe you and I are not very familiar with, and that is the office of prophet. We are all very familiar with the office of teacher. As a matter of fact, throughout the last 2,000 years, we've kind of made that the biggest deal. So every senior pastor is also the teacher, and you go, oh, I go to church, and somebody's the instructor. And Now, whether or not that should or should not be, that was not how it was in the beginning. As a matter of fact, if I asked you and I said, okay, go over to building D where the Bridgeway offices are, show me where the prophets hang out. You'd be like, uh, that's weird. We don't have any prophets over there, like on staff and everything. Okay, so they did. And we're going to get into a question about why we don't and whether we should, right? We're going to get into all that. But they were in the office of prophet. Now, the best way to think through this is that just because I have a core teaching team that are the primary teachers of this church, that does not mean that all of us can't teach out of the Bible. Does that make sense? So there's a big difference between someone operating as a teacher and somebody that has the office of teacher. The office means you get authority and a lot of accountability. Is that correct? So I don't get a chance to just go up here. Pastor Judah doesn't get to go up on this pulpit and talk about his opinions any way he wants. All of us are held strictly to a biblical theology and to speak through the lens of the culture of Bridgeway, which is not simply defined by me. I'm the primary vision caster, but it has to be honed and purified through the elder board, then it has to be broken down for real life through the senior leadership team. I do not operate on my own. When we teach, we do not teach on our own. We have a lot of rules that govern us. That's because the office needs high checks and balances, okay? So they had these prophets who had these high checks and balances. They were a group that were high level in the church. Now you go, well, I don't, is it really that big of a deal? Do we really need that? Okay, well, keep your finger in this passage, and if you could, just jump two books to the right, all right? We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 12, 28. 
So keep your finger in Acts 13.1, and I just want you to see this with your own eyes. It's just one verse, 1 Corinthians 12.28. Here's how Paul laid it out, how the early church operated. He's explaining how it got set up by God. Here we go. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second, what? Prophets, and third, teachers. Okay, then miracles and gifts of healing, then gifts of helping, then gifts of administrating and various kinds of tongues. Now, let's pause there. We don't consider it that big of a deal. It was listed as the second highest level of office. Apostles was first. What's an apostle? There's a lot of opinions about this. You go into different Christian traditions, everybody says apostle is something different. I'm going to tell you from my opinion, out of what I see in Scripture, here's what an apostle is. It's someone that is selected out by God as the point person with authority. They are the groundbreakers. They are the ones that lead at the highest level. They are endowed with leadership. Okay, That's what an apostle is. Now, we know that there were the 12 apostles, yeah? I mean, there was the 12 disciples that went with Jesus. They were named apostles because they were sent out by God as his authority ones. But they were not the only apostles. We refer to Paul the apostle. He never walked with Jesus. We refer to other apostles in Scripture. So it wasn't, there wasn't just one group, but it was those who functioned in that capacity. They were first Why? Because we all know that God moves through leadership. It's very hard to run anything organized without leadership. So leadership began. But what are you leading? How do you know what God wants? How do you hear anything from God? Well, you got to have some revelation from God. Is that right? And you're like, well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. What the leaders should have done is just followed the Bible. We don't even have the Bible yet. See, this is the part we kind of read backwards a little bit wrong. We are in A.D. 47 in this story. It is likely not even the first gospel has been written. Paul has not written any of his letters yet. So you basically have the Old Testament and nothing else. But I think we can all agree that even though the New Testament really expands the Old Testament, Jesus dropped some serious bombs and changed a lot of stuff. Is that true? He starts talking about grace. He starts talking about being born again. He starts talking about being children of God. He starts talking about spiritual gifts. He starts talking about everybody has access because the curtain was torn in two. That is radical stuff. How in the world are they supposed to go teach that when there's nothing to read? There is no story of the gospel. There is no theology of Paul the apostle. None of that's been written yet. So how do you get the word of God. The walking Bible was the office of prophet. They had to share on God's behalf. And the only way people could trust them is if they were in an office with high accountability and they could match it with the big dogs and make sure they weren't just spouting off whatever they wanted to say. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the office of prophet, unfortunately, went into misuse and then into dormancy. Why? Because revelation, personal revelation, is one of the most slippery, most difficult to hold accountable pieces of Christianity, right? Like if I come up here and I say the book of Ephesians chapter 1 says, you can go back 
and do your research and double check me. And you can go, no, it doesn't, right? You can hold me accountable. But if I come up here with a revelation from God and I say, God spoke to me last night and he said, everyone must wear skinny jeans. <laughs> now, I understand this is where women are like, you don't understand me. You know, and I'm like, hey, talk to God, right? You know, because they're like, that's not in fashion anymore. I'm like, I know. Okay. And then all the guys are like, I'm a construction worker. I won't do that. And I'm like, you're defying God. Okay. Anyway. So imagine that comes out. Now, you would have a really hard time holding me accountable to say, because this is all you got. God didn't talk to you. And I go, yeah, he did. And you go, no, he didn't. And I go, yeah, he did. And you go, no, he didn't. And that's all we got. We can go nowhere, right? Because you can't hold me. How are you going to know whether that's legit or not? You're not going to know. So early on, because everybody had the Holy Spirit, you all of a sudden had all these people that were getting downloads from the Lord, and they found out, man, I could be a big deal too. And they found out it was a way they make money and they could get in leadership. And so things started getting squirrely pretty fast. How do we know that? Because there's a document that we have from around A.D. 100. So we're talking about around this same area, 50 years after this story. It was a church manual. Now, I'm going to butcher the name of it, but we all know it popularly as the Didache. The Didache is an early church manual, and it talks about the office of prophet. It was like, hey, you guys, prophets are cool. Prophets are good. But if they ask you for money, they're garbage. You're like, whoa, that was weird. They're like, if they keep wanting to hang out at your house, they're probably messed up. You're like, that's awfully specific, right? (laughs) And so you start realizing that the office started being a little bit odd, and so the church stopped apprenticing more prophets in the office, and it started going into disuse, and then all of a sudden it disappears. Now, here's what's interesting about it. Should it be gone? I don't think it should. Here's the problem. I think it should be restored, but I've never seen it role modeled well. You understand what I mean? I don't know any churches that do it well. What I see is a lot of prophets showing up. I don't see the accountability. I don't see the staff organization. I don't see any checks and balances. So you have these renegades going, I'm getting words from the Lord. Maybe you are, and this is really an important piece. Do we hold personal revelation on the same par as Scripture? We don't, but why? Because here's what's interesting. Same source. The Bible was written, it says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he carried regular people along, revealed through their personalities, through their styles, through what they knew, and got down into Scripture what he wanted them to say. If the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible and the Holy Spirit is giving us messages, it's the same source. Is that correct? So why don't we hold them at the same level? It's only one reason. Inability to validate. Does that make sense? In other words, the New Testament was internally validated that it was legit. The Holy Spirit was like, this is legit, this is legit, and it cross-references each other. So we know this was at least legitimate. This is for real. This can be authoritative because you can go back and analyze it. It's all written down, and this is a safe revelation from God. Any new revelation is matched against this. If it contradicts, it's out. Does that make sense? But if you're matching it up against it, clearly they're not equals. Does that make sense? So in modern day prophecy, this is where a lot of people that aren't used to it, they're like, well, in the Old Testament, when prophets were wrong, they got stoned. 
You're like, oh, okay, I'm not sure why that's what you want, but okay, <laughs> right? But what you find out is the New Testament in 1 Corinthians says, we're all able to receive revelations from God. If any share it out loud for the church, everyone else does what? They weigh what is said. Means you analyze it according to the word, you pray through it and see if it resonates, okay? So we have a culture here at Bridgeway where we are encouraging and we're gonna have further training on how to hone. There are some of us that are gifted in the prophetic. All believers can operate in the prophetic. That doesn't mean you're all prophets. Doesn't mean that everybody holds the office of prophet, nor you even have the gifting of prophet. But we can all receive words from the Lord. So we start having checks and balances here at Bridgeway and we take everything on a case-by-case basis. If somebody comes to us and they said, I believe I have a word from the Lord. We actually have a process that goes through. We have a supernatural team here, has elder on it, has leaders on it. And what we do is we take that word, hand it to them. They pray over it, they analyze it according to scripture, and they see what is legit and resonates. And anything that is good, we then pass over to the elder board, we process it, and then we get it to you. That's a pretty significant checks and balances system. In the other way, We like the idea that somebody, if you get a word from the Lord, it would be beautiful for you to share it in the appropriate way with other people. But how do we stop that from getting weird, right? So here's kind of, I just want to share a cultural thing. Once again, this is not in scripture. This is a cultural thing that I set for Bridgeway. And it's this, please do not use the phrase, God told me to tell you, okay? Now, that may be true, I'm telling you, don't communicate that way. Here's why. You are shutting down our ability to weigh what you said. You're ruining it because I can't push back on you. If God told you, now I have to go bring it up with him. And here's the reality. The reality is I believe very strongly the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Here's my problem. You're sketchy. Does that make sense? Oh, I ain't worried about the Holy Spirit. He's good. I'm worried about you. You're weird. Okay, so the reality is, yes, the Lord wants to talk. I just don't know the level of how good of a conduit you are right now. Does that make sense? So what I need to do is I need you to come and have a humility that says, I feel or I believe that the Lord has given me a message for you. Hey, take it with a grain of salt. Bring it to the Lord. That type of gentleness allows you to convey the message, but it doesn't create the creepiness if that makes any sense, is it allows me to now hear it a little bit softer and go, oh, okay, I'll pray about it. I appreciate that. Not everything everybody says to you is from the Lord, right? But sometimes it is, and we need to be sensitive to it, but also mature enough to sift and sort it. So that we want to move forward in this, but we need some checks and balances, if that makes any sense. My job as, as a shepherd here is to make sure that this flock has relative safeguards because I watch over you and so does the rest of the team, okay? So we don't just want everybody willy-nilly throwing out, thus saith the Lord. That just gets a little bit weird, okay? So sure enough, these, these guys are both prophets officially and they are also teachers officially. They get the revelation, then they explain it, all right? So who are they? Well, we already know Paul. We already know Barnabas. He's been mentioned a number of times. He's that charismatic, fun-loving, son of encouragement bar. 
means son of, right? I guess Nabus means encouragement, whatever. Please don't use that word. That's dumb, right? <laughs> so we have these other ones mentioned, and sometimes in our own personal reading, we just blow past this. Here's what you would have missed, because I think this is important. The first important figure is Simeon. Why? Because his nickname is Niger. You go, I don't understand. Niger means black. You don't call someone black if they're not black. So you go, wow, this is the first called out, named black senior leader in the church. Now, were there many other ones? Of course, because nobody back then in an international environment cared about color of skin. They were interested in what country you came from. They were like, oh, are you African? Oh, are you, right? You, oh, you're from Alexandria. Oh, you're from whatever, Jordan. Okay. So they weren't worried colored about skin. They were more concerned about location of birth. But when someone is called out and they go, we call you black, you're probably black. So why does the Bible mention that? Now, I'm going to suggest the next guy, Lucius of Cyrene, that's northern Africa. So now you start having even more flavor coming in. The reason why this matters is you realize God front-loaded diversity into the Christian church immediately. It's calling it out. These people are from all over the place. And what his point was is I need you to be able to have a well-rounded representation of how I communicate with differences. We started out Jews specifically, homogenous, but very rapidly we built in diversity. Diversity is always the plan of Christianity. You do not want all the same people seeing it all from the same direction. You want diversity. Well, there's one other character that I find fascinating, and that is Menaean. Why? He is, and I don't want to go too deep into how we know this, but we have some duplicate documents that talk about this passage that we found in 300 AD. He is the foster brother of Herod Antipas. Why does that matter? Herod Antipas is the guy that cut off John the Baptist's head. He's the guy that watched over the portion of the trial of Jesus Christ himself in a negative way. His brother, who was adopted into the family, is one of the ringleaders of the Christian movement. How weird is that family dynamic? Right? Hey, I lead Christians. Oh, that's funny. I kill Christians. Wow. Thanksgiving is so awkward. <laughs> right? Have you ever had the experience where you look at your sibling and go, how did we grow up in the same home? Like, who that? You're an alien. What the heck? Right? They had that experience. All right. So sure enough, this early church is getting kicked off. Antioch is the hub. How does it go? Let's pick it up in verse 2. In the year AD 47, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and that's powerful. Remember, they're prophets. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying more, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to the local ship port of Seleucia, and there they sailed to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. And when they arrived at the eastern seaport of the island called Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark as their assistant. That's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
Okay? So quite the power team, but he's a young guy at this moment. He's Barnabas's cousin. All right? Cool. So let's talk about this. So they are praying and they are prophets. They are fasting and the Holy Spirit communicates to them. In that other document, we find out they asked the Holy Spirit and he responded. That's pretty rad, right? And what was his message? Hey guys, we need to jump on this. You know Barnabas and Paul, they were built for this. They're missionaries by nature. So come on, let's get them moving. We need to get them out there. And I'm telling you, now's the time. Let's go. It says, then they fasted and prayed more and sent them off by laying hands on them. Okay, a couple things. Why were they fasting? Does it matter they were fasting that the Holy Spirit spoke to them? Probably. Because there are more conducive environments for the Holy Spirit to move and less conducive environments for the Holy Spirit to move. In other words, your environment matters. But let me ask you this. Why is being more hungry, how does that help you hear the Holy Spirit, right? When I'm hungry, I have a hard time hearing my wife. (laughs) Does that make sense? You guys have heard what hangry means, yes? Okay. So how does not eating make it conducive to the Holy Spirit? Well, let me give you another one, kind of loop around and explain it. You know another conducive environment for the Holy Spirit to speak? Worship. How do we know that? Because, I mean, you guys have experienced this, right? So we'll get to the end of a sermon, right? And we're like, hey, can we have the prayer team come on out? Or, hey, can we have the worship team come out? And then somebody comes out, ding, ding, They play their little, you know, you're like, oh, I get it. You're moving on our emotions. I understand you're trying to manipulate us. Okay, no. There's a practical reason why we do it, and there's a biblical reason why we do it. Here's the practical reason. Y'all are way too easily distracted. The practical reason is we're trying to get your attention focused into a holy moment. That's the bottom line. We're trying to remove ambient noise, okay? Because sometimes you're like, oh, I'm totally focused, and the little baby's like, and you're like, oh, I can't handle it now, right? And you're like, I got to make my grocery list, and, and, and we just lose you, right? Okay, so the music is like, bling, bling, don't listen to the baby, don't let, you know, it's that kind of thing. So you're trying to focus in, right? And so what we end up realizing is that's a conducive environment. Now, the biblical reason comes from the prophet Elisha. And you just can jot this down in your notes, 2 Kings 3, 2 Kings 3.15. You don't need to turn there. The prophet Elisha in the Old Testament, one of the coolest guys ever, he was required and asked to give a word from the Lord in like a short amount of time. Not like I'm going to go hang out and let God talk on his timing. I need to hear from the Lord. This is his quote. Bring me a musician. It says, and as the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, thus saith the Lord. What's the point? It was in that worship atmosphere that the Holy Spirit spoke clearer. He knew that the atmosphere mattered. Okay, so let's go back and ask the original question. Why is being hungry, or why is the music moving the Holy Spirit? right? Because you feel like the Holy Spirit is like, "Mm, your tummy's full. I can't talk right now. Or if he's like, I feel so bound up. It's so quiet here, right? I need a little something to flow with, right? Here's the bottom line. The Holy Spirit doesn't need any of that. We do. It's not for him. It's for us. We have to dial in. That's all. 
The Holy Spirit is like, man, I would talk to you all day long. I just can't seem to get through to you, right? So here's the deal. How about you prepare your hearts? You know, there's a lot of us who were very resistant towards the idea that God could talk to us. Like we were never raised that way. We think it's one of those weird charismatic things. And so we kind of fold our arms and go, well, if God speaks today, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry, are you God? Okay, whoa, 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 you better watch it because here's the deal. The Bible says, ask, seek, knock. Draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. It does not say sit back in your lazy chair and demand he come to you. Because here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to find out. It'll just stay quiet. Does that make sense? Like, so what we need to do is we need to lean in. Do you really want to hear the voice of God? All right, then lean into it. Make sure that we're preparing our hearts, preparing our spirits so that we can hear the voice of God. So sure enough, they did all this, and the Lord's like, you know Paul and Barnabas are my missionary guys. Let's do this. So they laid hands on them and sent them out. Once again, laying hands on. We just did that with Pastor Gabriel. Why? Why are we physically touching people? The Bible has four most common environments for laying on of hands. They are this. In the Old Testament, this all got started. Do you remember the animal sacrificial system of the Jewish people in the ancient world? The way that it would work is when you needed to do an animal sacrifice for atonement for sins, you would bring the animal to the priest. He would lay his hands on the animal's head. You would lay your hands on the animal's head, which is super weird, right? The animal's like, hey, personal space, what do you, you know? <laughs> you put the, your hands on the head, what's going on here, right? And then the animal is sacrificed. Why? It's an impartation of your sins and you're identifying with the animal so it then dies in your stead. Does that make sense? That idea of impartation or identification is also used in a couple other areas. One of those areas is commissioning leaders, okay? So like we laid hands on Pastor Gabriel, when Moses handed over authority to Joshua to lead the people of Israel, he laid his hands upon him. When Paul launched Timothy into ministry, he laid his hands upon him. So what we are doing is we're saying, listen, as other leaders, as the governing body, we are imparting to you authority on our behalf. That's why you lay hands on them. Now, another common way in the New Testament is a lot of times when the Holy Spirit would be brought on someone, the other person would lay hands. Now, all the time, that wasn't the case. Ananias laid his hands upon Saul. Saul received the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Ananias already had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like, listen, I need this to be unified. How about you touch him, I'll jump, okay? In other words, I'm going to multiply out, but I can't have you guys divided. So he would have them lay their hands on, and the Holy Spirit was multiplied. The last one, and the one that we're probably most familiar with here at Bridgeway, is that you lay hands on for healing and blessing. Because we've seen that, right? Like if you ever ask me for a prayer, almost always I'm going to lay my hands upon you. Because what I'm saying is, Lord, whatever authority you've given me, whatever power in the name of Jesus, use me as a conduit that your power would flow through me right into this person. That's why we do that. Remember, Jesus had the little kiddos that wanted to be blessed. The family wanted them blessed. So what did he do? He brought them up on his lap and he laid his hands on them to bless them. It was the impartation concept. All right, so they send these guys out to go do ministry. How does it go? Let's pick it up in verse 6. 
When they had gone through the whole island, it's a big island, walking from left to right is the distance of walking from here to San Francisco. So this is a long ways. When they had gone through the whole island as far as the western edge by the city of Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the governor or proconsul named Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But the magician opposed them, seeking to turn the governor away from the faith. Okay, let's pause for a moment. What's a magician? Uh, um, A magician, uh, in the Bible, it's a little bit of a very broad, loose term, and it changes throughout history. So, for example, Daniel was considered a magician, but really it was that he was connected with God, he was super smart, he was a strategist, and he was supernaturally involved. So, the pagan kings didn't care who their advisors were or how they worked as long as they were successful. So, scientists were called magicians, astrologers were called magicians, dark arts were called magicians. Like, it was, it was a big catch-all phrase. This dude is a bad guy, and he's involved in getting information, either lying or getting it from a demonic source, okay? So, he's at the right hand of the governor. So, the governor is like, hey, Paul and Barnabas, I would love to hear the good news. So first of all, real quick, why would he ask that? Why would any non-believer want to hear about Jesus? Well, there's a human side and there's a God side. The human side says, I feel like they have something that resonates with me. I feel like they're telling the truth, and I feel like there's some hope there, right? But we all know on a spiritual side, no one is ever going to be open to the gospel unless the Holy Spirit draws you. Does that make sense? So we know it's a big deal. Okay, why is the guy chipping in the other person's ear going, those guys are bogus, this whole gospel thing is trash, don't listen to them, they don't know what they're talking about, they're all misled. Why is he actively trying to ruin the ministry that Paul and Barnabas are doing? Well, I got to assume there's a human side to it, which is if my boss gets saved, I'm out of a job. Yeah? Which he's like, I ain't doing that. I don't want my influence being moved by these yahoos. So he's like, they're garbage, they're garbage, they're garbage, right? He's kind of slandering them and trying to make the governor not listen. But we know there's a deeper reason, and that's why. There's a demonic influence that does not want someone to be saved. Does that make sense? All right. So he's going, nah, nah, don't listen, don't listen. Don't li-. How do you think Paul's going to respond to this? Hmm, let's check it out. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Uh Uh-oh. He locks eyes, and you're like, oh, this isn't going to go well. And he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the governor believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Wow, that escalated quickly. (laughs) In the year of power, you're like, I didn't know we could do that. (laughs) Right? And then you're like, 
did you cut me off in traffic? Mean miss come upon you. And you're like, oh, all right, you guys, mellow out, all right? You know, this is a big traffic jam. You know, you're like, don't ever cut off a Christian. Those people are weird, okay? So you kind of look at this and you go, man, this is a really bizarre story because you're like, well, the power of the Holy Spirit, he blinded this dude. That's pretty intense. And it, it, we could go down that rabbit trail and, and talk about that, but here's what I want us to kind of focus on. Why was he so angry? Because Paul loses his mind. And you go, okay, modern day view, Paul, I think you're making too much out of nothing. Everybody's got their opinion. Everybody's got their truth, bro. Okay, I mean, like, you got your view. This guy had his view. Why are you getting all mad? Okay, first of all, that's garbage. Here's why. There is only one opinion, and it's God's. And if it ain't God's opinion, it's trash. Because the reality, the reality that, oh, we all got an opinion and somehow we can argue with God is not right. If it was a good idea, if it was truth, it would have been in God anyway. So anything outside of God is automatically wickedness. It's automatically bad. The only reason you or I have any good opinions is whether we're aligned with the Lord or not. So this whole idea that everyone's got an opinion and we can all have our own truth, that is not true. It is God or it's not. That's it. Yep. Now, because, you know, because we're kind of like, well, hold on, I still think you're making a lot out of nothing. Do you guys remember the time that Jesus is walking with his disciples and he was like, hey, guys, I need to tell you something pretty heavy. And they're like, oh, what's up? And he goes, you know, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tortured and I'm going to be killed. And I just need you guys to know that in advance so when it happens, you don't get rattled. If you guys remember, Peter was like, hey, boss, real quick, come here, come here. And he's like, what? And he's like, dude, (laughs) you are killing morale, bro. Like, like, oh, we're all going to die. Okay, that's not how you lead, okay? What I'm saying, we'll get you, we'll protect you. Do you remember how Jesus responded? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus just lit up on him and was like, how dare you? You are leading by thoughts of man, not thoughts of God, and you're opposing the work of my father, and I'm not having it. So knock it off, right? And he just, is there a time for righteous anger? Yeah, there is. Just make sure God's mad and you're just not personally ticked off, (laughs) right? A lot of people are throwing God's name on something you got a beef about. Stop doing that, okay? Don't put his name on it, right? Okay, so the bottom line on all of this, and we'll just close with this. The bottom line on all of this is simply this. Look at how the story went, because I don't think this is how we view it. I told you at the beginning nothing is impossible for God. I told you at the beginning that God is almighty. I told you That there is no pit he can't reach someone in. There is no obstacle he cannot cross. There is no enemy that can come up against him. So, how do we look at the story here? All of a sudden, you got what? You got Paul and Barnabas doing ministry stuff, right? They're out on a missionary journey. And all of a sudden, they come up and they're like, oh, sweet, got a killer opportunity to talk about the gospel. And all of a sudden, a bad guy comes in and ruins it. For a lot of us, we're under the mindset that the enemy is more powerful than he is, and we would have stopped right there and said, oh, we gave it our best. What did they do? Nope, I'm a child of God. Get out of the way. 
And wham, they just slammed that guy out of the way and said, we will promote the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you got that kind of ferocity, it comes from a mindset that we serve a warrior God, that, that our problems are not bigger than him, that, they, that, that he is not stunted by whatever stunts us. And so what I want so desperately is for us to realize when we are going out and doing the will of God, if there is opposition, you don't automatically pack up and go home. You pray it through and you break through and say, I am here on behalf of heaven, therefore I'm not going home. I will break through and break through and break through because my God is almighty. So I just want to encourage you as you walk out of here, are you, are you not a child of God? If you're a child of God, different rules apply with you. And when the enemy tries to shut you down, that's not the end of the story. You see, you're not doing it, I hope, in your own power. But you are doing things for God. If you're doing things for God, he gets to dictate how it works. Okay? So when you walk out, I want you to hold your head up high. I want you to have strength in your heart, humility in your spirit. And let's get this done. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your clarity. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for being uh, the one that would love us even in our messiness, that you are the one that's so patient. You're the one that allows us to march under your banner even when we embarrass you. So God, I just pray right now that we would be freshly anointed and have our eyes open to be able to see clearly that, Lord God, you are on the throne, that our problems are not too great for you. The enemy cannot stop you. And if he can't stop you and we are doing your stuff, then he can't stop us. Lord, I just pray that you would give us a ferocity of spirit that of anything that you would say angers your heart, that, Lord, we would adopt that and we would actually pray it out of the way. So, Lord, I just pray for all of us to have a confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen.